Unless Drew's not ready. Drew's always ready. He's just, oh. just likes to surprise us. Look at you. <laughs> Look at you. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is Tuesday today, a single topic on a single show. Today we're talking about January 6th, two years and, you know, whatever, three, four days on. Uh, and what it means, has meant, will mean for uh, this democracy, also this economy. We're going to talk about that for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's been two years since the attack on our capital. For some of us, especially here in Washington, it feels like it was just yesterday. Uh, but since then, there's been so much that has happened. We've had congressional hearings. We've had impeachments. We've had investigations. We've had actual election deniers, some of whom participated mm-hmm. in some way or another in the attack on the Capitol, taking office uh, in the midterms. Through it all, our country has been and remains extremely polarized. So we wanted to take this moment to kind of look at what this does mean for our democracy and if there's a path out of it. Uh, so here to make us smarter about all of these things is Jennifer McCoy, a professor of political science at Georgia State University. Welcome, Professor. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I imagine the answer to this question is not going to be delighted, but in a few words, how would you describe the state of our democracy uh, and how it compares to where we were two years ago? Well, I think we're still in a very fragile uh, situation. Um, We've got, though, uh, some signs of hope of of progress, and I think in in this last election, uh, with the defeat of many of the election deniers for the important posts of Secretary of State, in some cases, Senator, Governor, were a good sign that people were rejecting people who were questioning our democracy. In other words, voters were voting for democracy. So I thought that was a good sign. But otherwise, we still have a lot of points of fragility. Well, so look, I want to I want to hear those points of fragility, right? Because that's the crux of this entire thing. But but on the on the issue of of people getting elected to jobs Getting the right people, let me rephrase that because not everybody agrees, and probably most mm. listeners' podcasts do, but getting people to uphold the rule of law elected to those really important positions is a positive thing. But what does it say about the institutions and the fragility of them that we depend on actual individual people doing the right thing? Well, that's always been the case. People kind of had this misperception that the Constitution, mm. the paper it's written on, even laws um, guarantee our stability. Uh, But it does not. It always depends on the individual will to follow the law, to follow the principles and a commitment to principles and to norms, because not everything is written out in the law. And certainly not everything Mm -hmm. is written out in the Constitution. So we do always depend on on individuals. But it's also that, you know, we've got some, uh, we've got a lot of distrust of the institutions themselves, and the institutions themselves have their own points of fragility. So, uh, so we've got to take all of that into account. Yeah. So go through a couple of those with us, these points of fragility. What are the ones that worry you the most? Well, in my research and with uh, colleagues as well, we found kind of three major points of fragility that make it hard for democracies where, where they have weaknesses on these components can make them very vulnerable to external and internal stressors and 
political polarization is one of these main stressors that we're experiencing right now in the United States. So the three points are first, does a country have consensus on kind of what we would call the boundaries of the political community? Who are the rightful citizens? Who's in and who's out? So the U.S. has never resolved its historic debates over this question, right from the founding when African slaves, Native Americans were excluded completely, and women were basically half-citizens. And now we add immigration into the mix. The second one, I would say, Mm. is, you know, societies need agreement on the rules of the game. How do we choose our representatives and form our government? Those are institutional arrangements. And then what's Mm. the role of the government? Um, in relation to citizens and what are our obligations to each other for basic welfare and well-being. That I would call the social contract. So in the U.S., we have a lot of division over those questions right now, what we call belief polarization. So we have Hmm. polarization over the beliefs about what are the sources of threat to democracy. The whole election integrity debate is part of that, you know, is the source of threat For Democrats, Republicans are a source of threat. For Republicans, it's the um, vulnerability of elections, the belief that elections are fraudulent. And then we also have differences of opinion over individualism versus the collective good. Are individuals responsible for their own well-being, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps? Or are there some systemic factors and inequities that mean we don't all have the same Mm. um, opportunities? The third one is... Do we, does a society have a shared national story that really mm-hmm. exemplifies shared values and a shared national identity? And here you can see, again, we've got strong debates in the United States right now about our actual history as a country, what should be taught in mm-hmm. schools, and how, how should the past be remembered and learned from? Yeah. Sorry, that's my dog scratching at the door. I'm not going to let her in because she's going to be soaking wet. Um, so, look, um, l- l- let me um, let me back you up to that beliefs thing, and I'm going to go down a little uh, a little tangent here. So, many many years ago, I got what I still consider to be two excellent pieces of advice from my best friend. One is that um, you can never give advice with the expectation it's going to be taken, right? So there's that. <laughs> but also. Um, you can't, and he didn't use this word. He was more he was more emphatic than this. But he he said you can't mess with people on their beliefs. And so, what do we do if, as you say, and I agree, people actually now believe the disinformation and the and the lies that they've been told? What do we do? Yeah. Well, of course, that's the million dollar question. Um, but yeah. part of that stems from this perception that we live in a zero sum society. So if Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. other group is in power or perceived to be gaining some, you know, benefit, then that means automatically that me and my group are are losing. And, And we don't have to view it that way. If we can start turning the story to a more positive sum story, and I think the media play a very important role in this, um... Instead, looking at, okay, what are the contributions of all the different groups, you know, including immigrants, for example, and what are the positive stories and how is, how do Mm -hmm. things benefit many people or even all of us? So, for example, instead of reporting on all these political debates and contests as the horse race and as 
you know, yeah. a, a competition with winners and losers, we could say, well, you know, this big policy achievement, they actually passed a law in Congress. Look how it's benefiting everybody. Or what are the contributions of these different groups? So, so that's one way that we could start. You and other experts have pointed out that we're kind of the only established wealthy liberal democracy that has experienced this sustained level of polarization, at least in in modern history. Um, And I'm sure we're going to talk about Brazil in a little bit, but but why are we the outliers here? What, What makes us so different? Yeah, it it was really astounding when we did this research and found how much the U.S. is the outlier. Um, We are like other big multicultural, multiracial democracies, but these are much younger and less wealthy ones. So especially Brazil and India would be two that come to mind who are highly polarized but share some of these same characteristics of being very large democracies with, uh, you know, uh, with multi-ethnic uh, basis. Um, so why, yeah, why, what is it about the United States? It's it's mm-hmm. several things, but one of them I think is actually our um, structure and our institutions. So the way we elect representatives, for example, is unusual when you look at other established democracies. So we have something called the single member district. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really a winner-take-all kind of thing. Only one person wins in each district for Congress and in many states the same way for the state legislature. And that actually gives a disproportionate representation. So it means that it could be a very close race, you know, 51 to 49%. So 49% of the people feel like they don't have a representative. And it could also be extremely disproportionate. So you had a case in Wisconsin where about Overall, 45% of the people voted for Republicans for the state legislature a few Mm -hmm. years ago, Mm -hmm. and they got 66% of the seats because of gerrymandering, the way the the lines were drawn. So if we changed that uh, system, we could help reduce the high stakes of the elections, which would help to reduce that zero-sum perception I was talking about that makes people believe every election is, you know, a life or death kind of thing. And I'll give you an example. New Zealand Mm -hmm. changed their system in the mid-1990s. So they changed Mm -hmm. from a system just like ours, the single-member district system, to a proportional representation system. And that could also make it easier for third parties to come in to play. Right now, our system makes it extremely difficult to break out of this kind of rigid, binary, two-party system that we have. This is not my original thought, uh, but... Uh, for for generations, centuries really, America viewed itself as an exporter of democracy, right? The beacon, city on the hill, you know, the whole deal. This is this is what we do and we will help the rest of the world come along. Uh, and, and yes, we, you know, abrogated those responsibilities with coups and the CIA and all of that jazz. But that's the image we had of ourselves. I wonder now, given given Brazil and the and the parallels, both between the leaders involved and the way those uh, interactions went down, are are we now exporters of of denialism and and discontent, do you think? (laughs) Well, yeah, many people have made a lot of parallels between Brazil and the United States and and asked that question, how much did Brazilians learn from the United States? And I think the answer is a lot. Um, And certainly Bolsonaro 
had been a close um, ally and looked to Trump, you know, as a as a role model, and followed his his um, playbook pretty pretty closely. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot, but you know, there's something that we could learn too from Brazil, and that is that in this last election that they just had in October, they uh, the society came together beyond the political parties, beyond the candidates, to say, this is about our democracy. And there was this really broad movement uh, for people to support Lula, the the alternative candidate to Bolsonaro, um, not because they believed or agreed with him on all of the policy issues or even his ideology. He was a leftist and there were people, you know, in the center and on the right and in the business community who didn't necessarily agree with him. But they thought it was important because they saw their democracy threatened by Bolsonaro's direction. And they came mm. together to support the election of Lula to, in order to support democracy. So that was an important, I think, um, and potential lesson for the United States that, mm. that it's got to be the whole society that um, helps to defend democracy. And you saw a lot of those same groups coming out very quickly after, you know, these attacks, you know, on on the Brazilian parliament um, to basically say that we, we, this is not how we want to run our country. And I think it's useful that you pointed out that businesses, you know, rallied behind Lula as well, because it's not just politics, it's the economy. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, strong polarization um, impinges the ability to make to make decisions, to make policy, and to have certainty that is needed for a strong economy and for business decisions. Well, so let's keep going with that. So, so I've got a I've got a theory that I'm trying to uh, theory and a story idea series idea. I don't know. It could mm-hmm. be like a PhD thesis that I'm trying to figure out how to make into good radio because it could be really dull if I do it wrong. But hmm. I wonder if the American economy can survive the corrosion of American democracy. And I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day, and he said, you know what? I wonder if the the polarization in the American economy, which we all know about, has driven some of the political polarization. What do you think? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I don't think it's been well established yet by researchers, but people are looking at this question, does income inequality, for example, right. um, create polarization. I think it's it's clear that economic anxiety, when people feel anxious right. or, you know, have actually lost their jobs or fear losing their jobs um, and also can see growing inequality, that that can definitely contribute to it. Um, yeah. But whether it's the primary driver or not, I, we haven't established yet. Uh, but it also matters because we, to address the very real grievances that people have, partly as a result of inequality and inequities, we need government resources. So polarization hurts. We can't decide, we can't agree on what role should the government be, but also the government doesn't have the resources if we have a very distorted economy and tax system. And as we know, as we keep seeing reports yeah. of, the billionaires aren't 
you know, aren't paying much. And if we could come to some agreement for it to share the burden more equally, that could not only help bolster the resources to address the real grievances, but could it affect the perceptions of people about unfairness? Because unfairness really drives uh, people to receive the message from populists and authoritarian and polarizing figures who say, they're to blame. Here's the reason you're in a bad shape. What they do is they they yeah. give people an answer by blaming somebody, identifying an enemy. And when people feel like the system is unfair and some people are benefiting that don't deserve it and while I'm not, then they're receptive to those mm. kinds of messages and politicians who then begin to destroy the democracy. Jennifer McCoy is a professor of political science. She's at Georgia State University. Professor, thanks so much for your time and your thoughts. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Hmm. Likewise. Hmm. That's a really interesting um, question, the sort of balance between economic inequality and, you know, the decline of democracy. I, I, I feel like, you know, the long, long past when I was working on my graduate degree in international relations, there was a body of research about, you know, the link between economic inequality and authoritarian governments, but not necessarily the decline of existing, you know, democracies. Um, That'd be really fascinating to dig into. Yeah. And and it occurs to me, you know, that that this has been brewing for decades, generations maybe by now, and we're going to be dealing with it for decades and generations. You know, we just are. We just are. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think. Uh, Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can email us with your smart thoughts at makemesmartatmarketplace.org, and we will be right back. I love how I can hear the rain pouring down in the background for you. Yeah, I know. I'm really sorry about that, but I had to be in the shed no, because I... my house is practically underwater and I had a bunch of stuff to do and so I couldn't get downtown. But yeah, it's not great. It'll look, it'll dry out. It'll be fine. And in the grand scheme of things, I've got a zillion freaking, you know, things to be thankful for. But right now it's just miserable. It's just miserable oh my goodness anyway let's do some news you want to do some news yeah i mean i want to keep talking about brazil i know i said the brazilian parliament earlier but it was actually brazilian national congress i mean the protesters and slash rioters slash attackers actually raided all three branches of brazil's government the national congress the supreme court the presidential palace and i feel like we kind of were second referencing it in the conversation but to just sort of lay it out Monster. what happened yeah. is brazil had an election um jair bolsonaro lost and he was the guy who everybody thought was very much like trump and very you know populist lots of rhetoric very anti media all a lot of similarities there he lost and luis da silva lula luis da silva how do you say his name uh, Luis Ignacio Lula da, Lula da Silva. Thank you Just for that. Lula. Okay. Lula yeah. yeah. Lula. He won. And 
in unlike our situation, this attack happened after he was already inaugurated. It happened on a weekend when a lot of government officials were not even there. Yeah. But if you look at some of the footage of these attacks, they are eerily similar to the attacks on the yeah. U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And the Washington Post has a really good piece sort of not necessarily side by side, but right next to each other, showing videos of similar scenes of police officers being attacked, of windows being broken, about offices being raided, and it looks so similar. And of course, we're going to have a link to this in the show notes. And then the BBC has a piece looking at a lot of the sort of U.S.-based agitators who were mm. promoting these things. And... uh begging the question of a lot of people like who's been advising the groups that were organizing this because this was also organized on social media people saw it coming there were a lot of hints that it was about to happen yeah. just like it was here but unlike here there was sort of a whole of government rejection of this yep. and not this sort of oh well it wasn't that bad and you know people have you know, legitimate reasons to attack the halls of government, things like that, that, that we had here. So it's very interesting to look at, especially given all of these comparisons. Yeah. And and I think it's worth a note here, and, and maybe we only do one news fix today, unless you want to get to your other one about Coinbase, which I nah, think it's not that urgent. Minor, we can get to it yeah, later. Mine can do that. Here, yeah. Here's why the American uh, congressional elections in 2022 were so important because the people, many, many, many of the people who are most vocal about the insurrection and supporting it and supporting an election denialism and lies are either freshly elected to or reelected to Congress. And that is a challenge if we're going to get over this. And the Republicans who were the ones who spoke out right. against Trump and the insurrection got booted from office. Well, now, yeah. we we can't, I mean, we can't ignore, you know, what Professor McCoy was saying is that a lot of the most extreme election deniers who actually held the levers of power of elections, especially at the state level, were not elected. And there were some election deniers like, you know, um, Carrie Lake in Arizona who did not win. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't all across the board that these folks won. Right. But, you know, it. Right. I, I was looking in, in some of the prep that Marissa gave us, the uh, Pew research looked at sort of how public opinion has changed regarding January 6th since the attacks in terms of whether or not people thought it was a big deal, whether or not people thought Trump was responsible, you know, whether, you know, all these things. And, and public opinion has not changed that much Despite the January 6th investigations and, and all of the research that they did and all of the data and, you know, evidence that they pulled up of what went down. I'm sorry, it wasn't Pew, it was Brookings. Um, you know, these things, it, it hasn't changed that much. It hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And that is disturbing. And it kind of gets to what you were talking about earlier about not being able to change people's beliefs. Right, right. Uh, all right. Mailbag? Mailbag. Right? Yeah. Mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, before our holiday break, we asked you to share your New Year's resolutions, and Maggie sent us this. 
Hey, Make Me Smart team. I just wanted to give you my advice on how I keep my New Year's resolutions. So what we do is next to our main door, we have this big dry erase board. And I write the year, I write our name, and then I have half of the goals be how we want to feel and half of the goals of what we want to achieve. So then that way, every single time I go out to let the dogs out, take the garbage out, come in and out of the house, it's subliminal messaging us. So it's not just force, 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 achieve, 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 but you're also, I want to feel happier, I want to feel healthier, I want more joy, Mm. I want more love, and I want to make more money. Hope that helps. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a great idea. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's a good one. You know, in in all this discussion about sort of chat GPT and, um, you know, how they're going to be able to figure out whether or not students are actually writing their own papers, several people have floated, you know, that they're going to go back to handwritten essays. And it reminds Mm -hmm. me that I retain information so much better when I write it out by hand oh, yeah. and same, same, same. when yeah. I physically yeah, yeah. read it. And so I, I, f- I wonder if like just that physicality of it not being a digital thing, mm-hmm. it not being something floating around in your head, but you wrote it out with your hand and you're looking at it in mm-hmm. front of you in real life, if that really makes it sink in. Yeah, I totally agree. That, that totally holds up for me as well. Totally agree. Mm. Uh, we will, as we always do, end with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes to us from Katie Milkman. She's a professor at Wharton, the business school mm-hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Well, I thought I knew that if you wanted to form a habit, the best thing to do was to be incredibly consistent about when you mm-hmm. engaged in the behavior you were trying to make That's habitual. I think too. So if you wanted yep. to work out more and make it a habit, Always go to the gym at the same time. If you want to meditate more, always meditate at the same time, right? Well, it turns out I was wrong. And I found out when I collaborated on an experiment with about 2,500 Google employees who wanted to build exercise habits. Some of the Googlers in our experiment were encouraged to exercise at a consistent time of day. And others were encouraged to exercise at more variable times. And lo and behold, the flexible folks went to the gym a lot more regularly than the rigid people. What this taught me is that it's really important to think about varying your routine when you're trying to build a habit because elastic habits are the most lasting habits. I am so glad to hear this because I have definitely heard this thing where when you're trying to build a habit, you need to do it at the same time every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I think about it, like I, I try to swim a lot, right? And I've been trying to Mm -hmm. get back to swimming more regularly. And at first, I did try to be like, okay, I'm going to swim at this time every day. But then if I missed that time of day, I was just like, well, there's no right. point to swimming today. Whereas yeah, if I'm right, like, exactly. I'm going to get it in at some point today, then it's much easier to do it. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I have a rigidity about me that, that makes it really <laughs> tough to change. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, oh, never mind. But anyway, I, but I, mean, I, I get the sentiment. It, How about though. that? I get the sentiment. Right. But that's right. the flexibility, right? Is that the not the same system yeah. works for everyone. And we're I think right. we're so fond of making these sweeping sweeping, you know, pronouncements like this is yep. how you do the thing when that worked for you, it works for you, but not for somebody who's like, you know, 
floaty right. squirrel distracted like me, you know. So <laughs> it's just floaty squirrel. It's gonna be my new podcast, floaty squirrel distracted. All right. Anyway, on that note, do not forget to send us your answer or your self-description of yourself, floaty squirrel or whatever. <laughs> send us your answer to the make me smart question, other comments, thoughts, you know how to do it. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART, please. <sighs> what would your description be? Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intone is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad with mixing by Gary O'Keefe. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. She's got that job because Bridget got kicked upstairs. She is now the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarpa. You should ask everyone to write in with the Kai descriptions. <laughs> oh, let's not. Let's not do. I mean, go ahead. Okay. But I'm ouch. sorry. I'm I'll sorry. Be, I'll be sick. I'm sorry. Day. No, look, I, get, I, I have a very clearly formed opinion of myself, and I, I know exactly what people are going to say. Or we should probably test the hypothesis. Oh, my God. Turn off my microphone. Somebody. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts.